Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of the Psalms, open secret of happiness, and tonight we consider Psalm 65. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we'll be considering especially verse 4, but I would like to read you the whole of this very happy psalm. Why, is I, why do I call this the open secret of happiness? Well, the book of Psalms begins with the word happy. The introduction is framed by the beginning and the end of that introduction, happy and happy. Happy is the one who meditates on the law of God, and happy is the one who trusts in the Son of God. And again and again, the Bible speaks about the way of happiness. Into a world that lacks happiness, it, it, and it has the secret of happiness, but it's an open secret. It wishes the whole world to know why God's people are so happy indeed. And in Psalm 65, a very, very happy psalm, by the way, we have that word uh, happy given to us in verse 4. As I've explained, uh, the word that's sometimes translated blessed in the psalms especially uh, um, uh, is not the ordinary word for blessed. Uh, It is most of the time, but every now and then it's just the word happy, but a, a happy state, a blessed happiness. And, and so the word blessed is used, but uh, we have, again, not the uh, Barak word for blessed, but the ashray, the how happy is the man you choose and cause to approach you in Psalm 4. I'll read it that way, and we'll consider together tonight. Psalm 65, hear the word of the Lord. Praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Happy is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice." You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pleasure, on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice. On every side, the pastures are closed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. Amen. Let's pray again. Our Father, we pray that we our own hearts might join the hills and the creatures in shouting for joy and singing praise to your name. For you are a good God and have called us. You have Indeed, as it says, chosen us to come and to approach you and to dwell in your house forever. Oh, how happy is such a man. How happy are your people. How happy are we to be in your courts again this evening. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, uh, 
You know what happens this time of year. It seems earlier and earlier the holiday music begins. When will it begin this year? We don't know. We have a rule in our house, though. My uh, wife is the one who most strictly enforces it, if you don't mind me saying, honey. Uh, yeah, not before Thanksgiving, right? Turn it off. We, we, we can have too much of a good thing, right? Oh, yes, it's happy and joyful, but sometimes it can be just a little too much of a good thing. How, however... There are holiday songs that we simply cannot get enough of, and Psalm 65 is one of those joyful holiday psalms that we can never sing enough. You say, is Psalm 65 holiday music that I didn't understand? Oh, yes. It's holiday music for this very week. Perhaps you didn't uh, pick it up, but this psalm celebrates the harvest uh, the God that began the springs in the, uh, the, the rain in the spring uh, then has blessed the uh, growing of the crops until now this uh, harvest has been prepared. It celebrates this time of harvest. It's also the, o- o- the only one of three psalms that use the word atone and uh, celebrating the day of atonement as well as the new year, uh, two references here in the psalm to the new year. You see, I still don't understand the connection. Yeah, in the Jewish calendar this week, we had the Day of Atonement, we had Rosh Hashanah, the New Year's Day, and uh, the Feast of Harvest begins today. So these, uh, the high holiday, the high holidays, the high holy days, I guess they call them, these, uh, these holidays are, are, this, are this week. The, uh, Day of At- the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, the New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, and the Harvest Festival, which is also known as Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Harvest. Uh, that's, uh, that's the week that started this past Tuesday, and uh, as I say, the Feast of Harvest is today. This psalm celebrates these aspects of life in God's world, that the God of grace is the God of atonement, is the God of plenty. The God who provides atonement for his people also freely gives us all things with that atonement. And so in David's song of praise, we are rejoicing in this God, our Redeemer and Provider. Well, a, a song that uh, is connected to a national Jewish festival, you might expect to be rather nationalistic, and it does surely celebrate a special relationship between God and his people, and praise awaits God in Zion, where the festival was held. But this God, you recognize right from the beginning, is the God of the whole earth. This God is the one to whom all men shall come, all flesh, in verse 2, is a reference to all the nations. And that universal note is sounded again and again in verse 5 and verse 8, that God is truly the hope of the ends of all the earth, not just uh, that they are trusting in the Lord yet. But to him all flesh shall come. And we are reminded in the early verses that the Lord is the maker of all and that he rules over all. God is good to all. Yet there is this special happiness that belongs to God's people at the head of the year. The God who takes away their sins, and the God who gives them all things. This is going to be the focus of our study. Happy, happy indeed, verse 4, is the man whom God has chosen. 
and cause to approach that we may dwell in his courts. We're going to consider that happiness. As we've considered a number of happinesses, the happiness of the one who meditates on the law of the Lord, the happiness of the one who trusts in the Son of the Lord, uh, the Son of God, the one whose sins have been taken away, the happiness of the pilgrim, and so forth. We consider now the happiness of being chosen by God. Happy is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. I'd like to consider actually three facets of this happiness tonight. Their happiness, God's happiness, and our happiness. It's a happy psalm. There's plenty of happiness to go around. Their happiness, God's happiness, and our happiness, all from Psalm 65. First of all, their happiness. Their happiness to be those chosen people. Why are they so happy? Well, you know that Abraham was not a worshiper of God from his youth, as, um, as Joshua reminded the people when they came into their inheritance. The Lord says to them, uh, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, they dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and brought him here. God showed a special love for Abraham and, in the midst of all those idolaters, chose him, not constrained in any way. He chose Abraham and his descendants after him. And so, from this time on, the Bible calls his descendants the chosen people, or in the older vernacular, the elect And God describes that choice of Israel this way in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as he brought them out of Egypt. He says, uh, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, many other passages could be brought forward, but this psalm celebrates God in his loving grace, has chosen Israel to be his own. Why? Why did God set his love, or actually it says delight in choosing you? Uh, Deuteronomy again says, not because you were the greatest or most numerous of people. In fact, you were the least. You were the most unlikely candidates to be chosen by him. You were not better or more deserving in that fact. In fact, uh, um, Abraham, of course, undeserving himself. Abraham, about the least likely man to start a new nation with a 90-year-old wife. Uh, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. God only chose one of them, Isaac. Uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. It says very explicitly before they were born, God chose Jacob, not Esau, to be the son of the promise. And in every case... God is is doing the opposite of what you'd expect. Why would you start a a nation with Abraham? 
Why would you choose Jacob, the mama's boy, the deceiver? The younger is chosen, not the older. Uh, Moses, who led the people, why him? Not a great speaker, not a man of courage. When we first meet him anyway, we could go right down the line. This is the whole point, God says. Isn't it amazing that despite the fact that you weren't the greatest of people, God chose you. The fact that Abraham was over the river worshiping idols, God chose him. What a privilege that you, the most unlikely, should be the chosen people of God. Here is Deuteronomy 10, describing the delight God had in doing this, in in choosing Israel from among the peoples of the earth. Indeed, he says, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. It's all mine anyway. But the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Well, what joy they had to receive such undeserved mercy, so unexpected in, in, in so many ways. Um, and you notice how Moses describes the election of Israel against the backdrop that, that God owned the whole universe. For, verse 14, God says, you know, uh, uh, everything in heaven and earth is is mine. And then verse 15, but he chose you for his people. You you see the contrast to dispel any notion that in any way God was constrained to choose them. Everything is his by, by, by right of creation. But God chose to set his love upon you, to to take you from among the nations. God, who owns everything in heaven and earth, absolutely everything, has chosen to love you. And Israel was to be joyful, to to wonder that God had freely chosen them as the object of his delight and love. And so uh, there are many psalms about this uh, in various other words, but here we have, happy, happy is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. Such special love was to cause them to rejoice. Or Psalm 147, he declared his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they've not known them. Praise the Lord. It's to be a cause of praise and joy and frankly, just happiness. How happy are God's people? Well, that's about, that's their happiness. Um, I would like to mention God's happiness and all that. Not only are they happy, God's happy about this whole affair. Again, I call your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 15, where it, it says that God had delight in choosing Israel from among the peoples. It, it pleased him. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 10, 15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. So uh, what was true of Israel, uh, being uh, honored with God's God's choice, Uh, God wants them to know for his part, he delighted to set his love upon Abraham and his descendants forever. God was joyful in it. And you know that what God made, what made God so happy then makes him happy about you today. More about this in just a minute, but I want to focus just just a little bit longer 
on God's happiness, even in choosing you. If you might want to look with me at Luke chapter 10, verse uh, 21, as we uh, just make this bridge, just to let you know that uh, God is delighted to choose you in just the same place. Uh, Luke 10, 21, this is one of only two places um, in the New Testament, if I'm not mistaken, where Jesus is said to rejoice. Uh, He did have the oil of joy more than his companions, and yet um, we have remarkably few references to the joy of Jesus, but but here we find him rejoicing. As a matter of fact, we find Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all joining together in this uh, good pleasure here in uh, Luke 10, 21. Here at Jesus, it says in verse 21, it says he is, um, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. What, what, what made Jesus so happy that uh, Luke should especially call attention to this joy? Um, well, uh, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is very interesting. Um, in this place where Jesus is said to rejoice, this is the same time in which the uh, 70 or the 72, depending on your translation, uh, ha- the, the, uh, they've come back uh, from a successful preaching tour. And, uh, well, certainly all have not received the word, but, but some have received it. And Jesus is rejoicing. You notice that verse 21 says that not only is he rejoicing, but he is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit meaning that uh, the Spirit's joy is bearing its fruit of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Uh, That fruit is being born in the life of Jesus, who has the Spirit without measure. Jesus rejoices in the Spirit. And we also read in the same passage that this is the good pleasure of God the Father. The good pleasure of uh, God the Father. Even so, it seemed good in your sight. Some of you have, this is your good pleasure. So you see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In that hour, Jesus rejoicing in the Spirit. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. What is it that has Father, Son, and Spirit rejoicing? Well, God hiding these things from the wise and prudent of the world and revealing them to babes. What what, what things? Well, uh, again, the preaching tour just being over here, but we are are told explicitly who the Father is, is what is being concealed or revealed. Um, And with the Father, the Son, Jesus says, no one knows who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So when these uh, disciples return from their evangelistic mission and give their report to Jesus, he and the Holy Spirit are rejoicing that God the Father has chosen, according to his good pleasure, that some eyes would see 
And behold, the Lord God has chosen to reveal himself through the Son and his will in such a way that it will confound all man-centered expectations in this world. That is, the wise and prudent are passed over in their pride. But babes receive a divine favor into their astonishment. Know the Lord. The wisdom of man is put down. But the glory of God and his grace is exalted all in one fell swoop. And Jesus beholds this situation at the end of this first great preaching tour, and he rejoices. Praise the Lord. He has joy in the Lord, hiding these things from some and revealing these things into others. Now, whenever this question comes up, uh, I realize there's some objections, and I would like briefly to handle some objections um, am I saying that, that somehow God is being arbitrary and choosing some more than others? Well, uh, other, well, arbitrary these days usually means doing something without any reason. Uh, people that are arbitrary in our modern use of the word just do something, and they say, hey, why did you do that? Oh, it was arbitrary, no, no reason on a whim. But God is not arbitrary or capricious. Um, as a matter of fact, he's very purposeful, as, as you see hiding these things from the wise and prudent, revealing them to babes. Jesus was destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The mighty he's put down, the hungry he is fed, right, and lifted up. So right from the beginning, this was what it was expected in the original. God is not arbitrary or capricious. Uh, I guess I should say that God is arbitrary in the old sense of that English word. Arbitrary used to be according to your own will. That is unconstrained from the Latin arbitrium for will. God does according to his will. Yes, in the old sense of the word, I suppose he's arbitrary, but not in the new sense of capricious. But the fact that there is no reason in me for my salvation, other than the fact that God doesn't choose the wise and the noble and the mighty, um, that doesn't mean that there's no reason behind God's action. For God in his wisdom is exalting his grace, just as he chooses the least of all peoples and to make them the praise of the earth. So in our day to uh, choose us, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty. God is keeping us humble, you see. <laughs> Having a stink bug land on you in the service. He's keeping us humble. Paul, why was Paul chosen? Because he was the worst guy. He had no boast at all. That in order that God might demonstrate his grace and his patience and kindness. If, God, if Paul could be saved, anyone could be saved. Why, why should the older serve the younger? Why should the foolish be chosen to shame the wise? In order that none may boast, but that he who glories might glory in the Lord. God delights in such a situation to receive glory from the lips of babes. Now, someone objects, I, I, I just don't agree with election. I, I think that whoever believes will be saved. That is saying the same thing from different perspectives. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All the chosen will believe. The chosen are the believers. Uh, what about whosoever will, you ask? The elect are the whosoever will, and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. Okay. Uh, if... But, it, but the point is, of course, if God did not elect, 
No one would be saved, for no one seeks after God, says the Scripture. We are by nature children of wrath. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And in so many ways, we remember that election is by no means a narrowing of the way of salvation, but taking it from nothing to a great and wide way in which men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that no man can count will be saved out of a hardened mass of proud and wise humanity. Arthur Pink writes, salvation is of the Lord, but the Lord does not save all. Why not? Does he save some, but not others? Why? It is because perhaps they are too sinful and depraved to be saved. No, for the apostle wrote, this is a faithful saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. It is not because they are too sinful or depraved. Well, if God saved the chief of sinners, um, none are excluded because of their depravity, but why then doesn't God save all? Is it because they are too stony-hearted to be one? No, it's written that God will take out the stony heart of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11. Then is it because they are too stubborn, too intractable, so defiant that God is unable to woo them to himself? Not at all. You get the point. Left to our wills, our destination uniformly would be the lake of fire. The Bible says, by nature we are children of wrath. But the next verse, but God, who's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. You could say even with which he delighted to love us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, once again, we find this principle at work. No one boasting before him. Everyone constrained to rejoice only in the Lord. And God delights in such a situation the Son rejoices in the Spirit that it was the Father's good pleasure to reveal the Lord unto babes. God's love for his chosen bride has been eternal, and in the covenant of marriage he has said to his betrothed church, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He has shown the greatest joy in giving his Son to ransom you. And so it is that God rejoices in his choice. And we are called to rejoice as well. Not only did they rejoice of old to be called the holy nation, and God rejoiced as he made his choice, both of the patriarchs and that nation and then of us, the emphasis for today now, we also are to be a happy people. Happy are you, chosen of the Lord. Our happiness is where I would like us to end up today. Charles Spurgeon writes, don't be afraid to dwell on this high doctrine of election, for when your mind is most heavy and depressed, you will find it a bottle of richest cordial. There, there is no other way to supreme happiness than to know God. And to know him is to have fullness of joy. And if we have been chosen to draw near to him, and to dwell in his courts forever. Happy, happy, happy are we. Why are we so happy? Well, I've got three reasons for you briefly. 
We rejoice in the mercy of God. We rejoice in the assurance of God's love. And we rejoice in our confidence in the day of judgment. This uh, tied in with the psalm, but also from other passages of Paul's letters and elsewhere. I'd like to conclude by thinking of our happiness as God's chosen people. First, rejoicing in the mercy of God. I've already covered this somewhat, and I won't go over all that ground again of how we have the same thing said to us, how we are a chosen nation and a royal priesthood, a, a, a happy people. But Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, begins with this joy. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, in love, predestining us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself and so forth, all to the praise, the praise of the glory of his grace. And again, to the praise of his glory and to the praise of his glory. Paul writes that to the Ephesians, to the Thessalonians, he says, we're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. I rejoice, Paul says, and thank God that he chose you. His first letter to the Thessalonians also begins, We give thanks to God always for you all, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patient of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Paul writes to Timothy, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You see your calling, brethren. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We are to rejoice as being the very unworthy recipients of such mercy. In other words, pink again, why should I, who am by nature no different from the careless and godless throngs all around, have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and blessed with all spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in him? Why was I, that once was an alien and a rebel, singled out for such wondrous favors? I can only rejoice in God alone. We should rejoice in God alone, he writes. As Peter says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Rejoice. Rejoice, holy nation, in God's mercy. Second, we are to rejoice in the assurance of God's love. The assurance of God's love. I, I wonder if any of you have any uh, adopted children or been adopted. I don't know um, any right, right off here, but it seems to me that there aren't many more glorious privileges a person can have than to be adopted into a family, very beautiful, a husband and wife decide to take a child and to set their love on him or her 
raise the child to the glory of God. A beautiful picture of what God has done for each of us in the gospel. Not a perfect picture because we don't have always the purest or most altruistic motives, but we again read how he chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That is, not because of any worthiness in us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And with such assurance, we could say with John, we love him because he first loved us. Knowing our salvation has involved a choice, a personal choice, that Christian salvation is not just that, well, you know, Jesus died for the mass of humanity, and how glad I am I'm part of that mass. Um, Jesus is surely lifted up as the Savior of the world, that all might look to him, and whosoever beholds the Son may be saved. Of course, we do not deny this. But the Scripture goes far, far further than that, that we might glory in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me who says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And he tells the Pharisees, he says, and you are not of my sheep. My sheep know me. I lay down my life for them. They shall not perish. I pointed out last time, the Arminian position denies this particular love. Article 2 of their protest says that Jesus is the Savior of the world and died for all men and for every man and has obtained for them all by his death on the cross, redemption and forgiveness of sins. I explained it's certainly true that Christ is the Savior of the world and appointed to be so, so that all might come to Him, and whoever does may be saved, but the Bible certainly doesn't say that He has paid for the sins of every man. Now, the psalm also is quite clear. Uh, As for our transgressions, you provide atonement for them. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. The just for the unjust has suffered to bring us to God. And in many other passages, we are reminded that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But for those who do not believe, he says, you are, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Well, that's not going to be the main subject today. My point is, if God has chosen to love me, if Christ has chosen to die for me, If the Holy Spirit has therefore chosen to fill me and all in love, we rejoice in such an assurance, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or that atonement, as the psalm says, covering over our sins. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. We should rejoice that of all the peoples of the earth, we have been so loved. What manner, what kind of love is this that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? To rejoice in such special fatherly love. And third, and finally, we rejoice in our confidence in the day of judgment. Rejoice in our confidence in the day of judgment. God has 
freely chosen us. He has set his love upon us. And now, as also mentioned in this psalm, we have the joy of sins forgiven. Iniquities against us daily prevail. Iniquities prevail against me. And as for our transgressions, you provide atonement for them. Happy is the man you choose and cause to approach you. Um, We can say with the apostle, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The God that has chosen us has justified us. That we might have confidence in the day of judgment. And when we do fall, This teaching reminds us that our obedience was never the basis of God's love to begin with. He did not choose those who were the best or the greatest. In fact, Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. The Lord chose us before we'd done anything good or bad and will not cast us away, but will raise us up and put his fear in our hearts and make sure that we continue to abide with him, as we read this morning. Al Martin writes, When is your life more fragrant than when the kiss of forgiveness is most fresh upon your cheek? Sin felt and mourned over drives a Christian afresh to the mediator of the new covenant who knew all about our failures when he called us. It's not that he didn't know. He knew. And he's loved us and chosen us and justified us. And who will bring any charge against God's elect when God has justified us? And this doctrine of election then becomes a powerful means of assurance. A friend of mine was talking to a woman, telling her how she might know the joy of eternal life. And he was frustrated because, in this case, she just couldn't accept the fact that she could be saved with all she had done. Um, She just uh, couldn't forgive herself, as some people put it. She just didn't think there was any hope for her. He says, well, it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No, not me. There's no hope for me. Well, it says, whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't know how bad it is in my heart. And he began, she began to tell some of the, the terrible, the terrible hard-hearted things that she's done and how hard of heart it had left her. And he was running out of things to say. And finally, it just, this is Dr. K. Finally, it just came to his mind. This probably would only come to Dr. K's mind to say, you know, the Bible says before the twins had done anything good or bad, one was shown mercy in order that the purpose of God according to election might stand. She said, what did you say? Before those boys had done anything, good or evil, in order that the purpose of God according to election might stand. She said, before they'd done anything good or evil? Yes, then maybe there's hope for me. And she turned the corner. This, this doctrine says there's hope for us all. There is hope for us that gives us confidence in the day of judgment. You say, oh, I don't love the Lord. I don't serve the Lord as I ought to. I don't trust in Him as I ought to. It was when we were enemies that He died for us. He loved you when you didn't love Him at all. He chose you when you didn't serve Him at all. He's he's not going to cast off any who have been accepted in the Beloved. He will labor with them. He will guard their feet. He will not allow them to stumble. We can have confidence in the day of judgment. In conclusion, Charles Spurgeon says, 
whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the Word of God with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. To me, it's one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation, and those who are afraid of it are afraid because they don't understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. Happy is the man you choose. Maybe you need to know that happiness today. In other words, maybe you are not one of God's elect. And you think, what hope is there for me? Oh, dear friend, you misunderstand. Uh, the Bible, the Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That uh, election and believers are just two, two sides of the same story, one from God's perspective and one from ours. And this message to you is to come to him today believing and being saved. And you say, well, my, my heart is very hard and unwilling. How can you tell me such a thing? One more time, Arthur Pink. To fleshly wisdom, it appears the height of folly to preach the gospel to those that are dead and therefore beyond the reach of doing anything. Yes, but God's ways are different from ours. For it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Men may deem it folly to prophesy to dead bones and to say to them, Oh, you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ah, but then it is the word of the Lord. And the words he speaks, they are spirit and they are life. John 6, wise men standing by the grave of Lazarus might pronounce it an evidence of insanity when the Lord had addressed a dead man with words, Lazarus, come forth. Ah, but he who spoke thus was and is himself the resurrection and the life. And in his word, even the dead will live. We go forth to preach the gospel then, not because we believe that sinners have it within themselves, the power to receive the Savior, it proclaims, but because the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and because we know that as many as are ordained to eternal life shall believe. John 6, and in God's appointed time, it is written, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And so if somehow in all of this talk about God's choosing, you find there's a new hope for you that you didn't realize before the twins had done anything good or bad, you're in that same category, that you might come to him to the glory of his grace. Well, we would have all the more happiness. We would rejoice with you. You would be saved. God would be glorified, and we would together rejoice. Let us finish the, the, the psalm with a prayer. Father in heaven, we consider this happy psalm, how you have crowned our years with goodness, how you've made our paths to drip with abundance in even a more wonderful way. That nation of old was happy that you had chosen them and caused them to approach you to dwell in your courts. Oh, May we who have our destiny to dwell in the house of the Lord forever so far exceed their joy. You have covered our transgressions. You have provided atonement to them. May all flesh come to you, O you who hear prayer, and to you may the vow be performed. God of our salvation, may you become the confidence truly of all the ends of the earth, and may all the tumult of the peoples be stilled 
as they come to the Prince of Peace. We long that uh, we might be able to understand these things better. We realize how often this comes up in the scriptures and yet how easy it is for us to tiptoe around and not to apply our mind to them. Even if we have said things amiss, our Father, we pray that insofar as we have understood truly, that we should all the more rejoice for you to set your mercy on a people such as us, for you to lavish such fatherly love upon us, that you should provide atonement for our sins, that we should have confidence before you now and forever. Who can have a boast? But as it is written, we who boast, boast only.